HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Nettle Meadow Farm Cheese and Spirits Pairing, taking place on Saturday, June 18th at Nettle Meadow Farm. For more information, visit NettleMeadowCheeseAndSpirits.com. That's N-E-T-T-L-E, MeadowCheeseAndSpirits.com. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network in Brooklyn. Today, we're leaving the studio and going into the field to bring you a special off-site reporting segment. Joining me in this segment are hosts Aaron Fairbanks of The Farm Report and Chef Emily Peterson of Sharp and Hot. Together, we take a step-by-step tour through Aero Farms, an indoor vertical farm in Newark, New Jersey, guided by CMO Mark Oshima. Later in the episode, we're joined on the tour by David Rosenberg, who is the CEO of Aero Farms. If this name sounds familiar, it's because we featured Aero Farms as our startup of the week a few weeks ago, and we're so intrigued and inspired by what they're doing that we decided we had to go see it for ourselves. So stay tuned, and we hope you enjoy this special reporting segment. So we just walked into the facility, and I'm definitely noticing that we are not where I thought we would sound like we were in the middle of a paintball facility. This is, in fact, a former paintball entertainment laser tag, and that's one of our <laughs> ethos, is how we can repurpose space. So here we are at 30,000 square feet, downtown Newark, uh, very much an industrial area. You wouldn't think that this is the bed of agriculture, but here we are. We're transforming agriculture. We're redefining the garden state here for New Jersey, and we're really setting a new stage in terms of how we can bring the farm to where the consumer is and do it at a, at a scale where we can feed a lot of people. What's the sound? It sounds like running water or something in the background. So the way we grow indoors, we use aeroponics, and we also use LED lights to provide the right spectrum. But what we're hearing is the misting of the roots, which is what aeroponics is about. So we can be very targeted with how we deliver the nutrients, as well as very judicious with uh, our most precious resource, which is water. This is a way of growing that uses 95% less water than you do with a field farmer. And this uses 50% less fertilizer, and it uses zero pesticides. So this is really redefining, again, how we think about our precious resources, 
how we create a clean and pristine product, and how we really think about the environment. So aeroponics are different from hydroponics. How exactly? Yeah, so aeroponics is a form of hydroponics in that you're using water to deliver the nutrients. But here we're using mist as opposed to hydroponics, you would be bathing the root. And it actually has some significant differences. So one, it allows us to be more precise, more targeted, again, with that water, with the nutrients. But it turns out what the roots need is oxygen. And so that is actually what leads to a faster growing process. Uh, hydroponic systems actually have to add oxygen to the nutrient solution. And so it can be very intensive, energy intensive as well from that standpoint. How much faster is the aeroponics system? So, than it's traditional hydroponics. Because we're able to optimize using aeroponics, but also the entire growing process. So we, we call it growing algorithm. So the nutrients and how we deliver nutrients, the lighting, the environmental controls. We can grow that exact same seed that may out in the field take 30 to 45 days. We can grow it in 12 to 16 days. Mm -hmm. oh, so in a greenhouse. Than like, like half. Yeah, a third. And then a greenhouse, a hydroponic grower, we can actually grow that may take you know 20 to 24 days. So we're talking about, again, significant differences. This is a way of growing that has 75 times more productivity per square foot than the field farm and 10 times more than a greenhouse hydroponic grower. So we're talking about some significant differences and advantages from a scale standpoint. And at the end of the day, you know, how do we drive down our cost of goods to make this accessible to everybody? It's about how do we have the right business model here. I wanted to ask about that square foot number. Are you talking about like if I'm looking just at a specific like bed where the like greens are planted or the entire operation? It's entire operation and it's also uh, for an entire year. So that's one okay. of our premises here is that we can grow all year round. So you start with that, the fact that you're not limited to two to three seasons that you would have out in the field. Uh, so we can get up to 30 harvests a year. So that's one of the big differences. We're also talking about the fact that we're growing vertically. So here we are in a warehouse, 24 foot ceiling. We have seven levels of growing, one stacked on top of the other. Uh, we're going to go see another facility later today, 36 feet, that has 12 levels of growing. So this is exactly fundamentally game-changing. So you take those two elements, plus you take the fact that we can really enhance that growing process and shorten it. And it starts with germination, it starts with the growing process, and optimize the plants throughout that entire uh, spectrum of its life. We're talking about some significant advantages. Can, can you walk us through what like a happy, what a seedling kind of looks well, like? Can we go in? I want to answer, yeah. but I want to. So we're gonna we're gonna step yeah. in. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I want to look at it. <laughs> Change of venue. I'm with you though. One of the things that was highlighted, we are going to go through a foot bath. Again, this is to sanitize your shoes. We're going into the clean area of the growing. So the process is simply you step into the first, you twist, and then you go into the next, twist again. No cameras here, but. One of the things that we have here in this facility, everything's demarcated, and we're really distinguishing uh, what we call high care area. And what we really mean is we want to make sure that the area where we're doing uh, the seeding, the germinating, the actual growing part is really protected. And again, it's about putting the consumer uh, really for, first and foremost you know, at what we're doing. And so we're going to stay between the green lines that are actually marked out on the floor. But what, what we've actually stepped into is actually the first stage in this particular uh, growing room. And here we actually have seeding that would take place here. Uh, we actually have germination chambers. They kind of look like these black boxes and they're... Yeah, it looks like a big black tent or yeah, something, right? Tent, yeah. And what we're doing is that we're actually managing the temperature, the humidity. We're doing different things in there to trick the seed into ger starting that germination process. So we're talking about in the field, when you plant that seed, it may take five to seven days to grow. Yeah. Here we're talking about hours. So within 24 wow. to 48 hours, we're starting that process. 
And is it in anything? Is it in like a container? Like a there's no soil involved in any sub of the process, so right? This is sunless and soilless agriculture. What makes this unique is really one of the things that we have a patent around is our growing medium. Our growing medium is cloth, and we'll talk a little bit about that. We'll show you some examples of what that looks like. Uh, but our growing medium, what makes it so unique is that it's a reusable medium. Uh, it's also made out of 100% recycled plastic. So we're actually taking 24 water bottles out of the waste stream to create something green and productive here. 24 water bottles to create. For how, how much does that create? For five feet by two and a half feet. Got it. So when we talk about our growing medium, they're set up, the cloths are set up onto a, uh, a flat tray. Yep. And that is really what's passed through the different stages. So it goes from seeding to the germination, then into our growing systems. And then literally days later, you pull it out for harvesting, it goes through our automated harvester. And so it's a way of growing where we think about, again, all the inputs, right? So the fact that our growing medium is a reusable. The question before is about what are some of the differences between how we grow versus a hydroponic grower? Typically, their growing substrate is something called rock wool. Uh, and that's something that is very energy intensive to, to create. You have to really heat up and, and really, it's like spun concrete. And then that's simply disposed. It's just thrown out afterwards. And so. Uh, very energy intensive, and so people have moved now to some of the natural fibers like coconut. Uh, but again, uh, you know, there's a shortage on coconuts now because of the popularity of coconut water. So every decision, these are complex worlds, that, you know, that we live in have yeah. con have implications and consequences. And like yeah. the traditional growing medium would be dirt. Dirt. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And remember that. <laughs> remember when we used to do that? Oh, thing of the past. <laughs> and so we think about dirt and you know some of the challenges there it's just hard to know what's going on right so you put the seed in and you kind of hope for the best you can't see it yeah. you can't see it and you, can't, you don't know and so some real some real life factory sounds here is how you know we're on the factory floor <laughs> some uh, some equipment's being moved around correct so we talked about the tray so that's the five and a half by uh, the five foot by two and a half foot tray and then the growing cloth so I'm not going to touch it just because it has to, would have to go back into the clean cycle yep um but again, we've been using some of the same cloths for, for multiple years. And it's actually, you know, the patents we have is around the weave, the weft, actually looking at what's the right porosity so that it can hold the seed, can get the right moisture. The advantages of the cloth gives us a lot of flexibility in terms of what we grow. So we can change very easily. We're not locked into any one particular item or variety. And we focus here specifically on short stem leafy greens and herbs because we can get more vertical beds of growing and we can get that faster growing process. But we can actually grow the vine crops, we can grow a huge range. But like with any business, it's about where we can see the business uh, opportunity right now. Yeah, and I de we definitely want to talk about the types of, you know, get more into the types of crops you grow. But before, I want to kind of detail the, the cloth, which looks a lot different than I thought it would. It actually looks kind of like a fuzzy blanket. And, and what I was envisioning in my head was something very very thin and light, and this looks like a warm... Like a sheepskin. Yeah, something. I know, that I just want to kind of curl up next to, so well, that's it's interesting. We, we do like to think that we give our plants and the seeds when it, when it starts, you a know, nice warm blanket. <laughs> a coddled life, right? So the idea that we're nurturing it from day one, right? Yeah. So it turns out, yeah, we have uh, specific patents on the weave, the weft, you know, and then uh, how to make sure it can, it can uh, hold in place. Yeah. Um, and then recover as well. So that as soon as that germination process starts, the root goes through the cloth, right? And then that's holding the, the, the plant in place. And then the initial cotyledon leaf comes up and starts growing. It, it almost looks too thick for like a, a little baby, you know, root yeah. to go through. But... And when you think about growing in that dirt, right? Yeah, how, yeah you're how, right. how dense is that? And then it hits that rock. I mean, 
it's pretty miraculous that anything grows outdoors right. because of all the different challenges. So as we walk in, and we go into the next stage of growing, we're moving from the germination uh, area. We're actually moving into uh, seeing our growing system, these towers, vertical beds of growing, one stacked on top of the other. And so product is entered on one side and then it's harvested on the other side. So it's a very elegant, very simple workflow. And as you look down this chamber, so these systems are five feet wide, they're 80 feet long, and you can see a progression of green developing as it maturing. As, as, we, as we get tall, as you get taller? As the plants get taller, as we progress down to 80 feet. Yeah. And so literally again, 12, 16 days later, we're gonna be pulling it out and harvesting it. So we'll get a chance to go through. But things that are very calibrated, so we're looking at systems here that we've all, we've developed everything that we're looking at. And that's one of the differences when we think about our approach uh, and our scientific uh, background. Uh, we started out back in 2004. Our growing technology was developed by one of the professors at Cornell, whose whole job was to deploy technology to help farmers. And aeroponics is used extensively in R&D because of the precision. And the idea was how to commercialize it, how to make it viable. And that's what our chief science officer, Dr. Ed Harwood, has worked on and really been able to perfect an approach here. So we're seeing chambers. And what's happening in those chambers is actually the misting uh, of the plants. So what the cloth actually serves as also is a barrier. So nothing ever touches the leaf. So when we water the plant, it's all happening underneath the cloth. It's happening underground, if you will, so that nothing ever touches it. So again, that's why it's a clean, uh, ready-to-eat product. And so this way of growing, we really think about how we optimize it. So here we're looking at LED lights to deliver the right kind of spectrum of light. So we actually understand what's the right type of spectrum, what's the right type of frequency, what's the right type of intensity, depending on the plant, depending on its stage of maturation. So the idea is, again, we've got amazing technology, but at the end of the day, how do we get it out to the marketplace? How do we distribute it? And that's really how, how we bring expertise throughout the entire organization. Farming is really tough, right? You've got to wear a lot of different hats, and so the idea is, how do you bring this expertise in? So we have the expertise on the growing. We have horticulture uh, experts, plant scientists, uh, plant pathologists, looking at every aspect. Uh, we have engineers, so again, a lot, lot of farms don't necessarily have. We have a mechanical engineer, electrical engineer, PLC, programmable logic controls. So everything that we're looking at is being monitored real time. We've highlighted that we have over 30,000 data points for 30, every one of our... 30,000 data points. And you're seeing it 30. 30, yeah. 30,000. That's so it's, many. It could be anything. Well, so, all right, I'm looking at the, you know, the, the piece of the, like, uh, tunnel here that's closest to us. Yep. And so basically it looks like a bunch of like little just germinated seeds like laying out in a paper towel, right? And I like look further down and I can see them like standing up like, you know, the first sprouts of like your chia pet or something, right? Yeah. What are they, what they're, so the, the roots are just like grasping on, like how are they, they're just grasping onto the little blanket? They're or? actually uh, dangling in air. And so okay. the idea of aero, aeroponics, air, it, it speaks to how we deliver it, but the idea is again, how we can have a better growing process. They're getting uh, all this great oxygen and they're really just growing. Uh, but they're hanging and, 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 and dangling in there and so we're able to deliver the nutrients that way. And so we'll get a chance to see some, uh, some of those options as we look at the more mature plants. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's a little hard to tell from where we're standing here. Yeah. yeah. Now what is this? There's a, there's a tank underneath the entire like, row of So the... we talk about our nutrient uh, reservoir, and so under each one of our growing towers, we actually have different recipes, different nutrients that are in there, depending on the plants. And what we're doing is actually 
uh, recycling. It's a closed-loop system, so it's one of the ways we can be much more efficient in terms of both the water as well as even the nutrients. Okay. And so the idea is that we can then, um, you know, reuse, and repurpose, and, and recycle everything that we're using. And that that happens right underneath in that tray. Is that that's like where where does it get uh, filtrated? So there's uh, filters uh, actually on the opposite side, uh, as well as we do have. Uh, so we have filtration and we have a UV as well to help be able to address anything that may develop. So this is you know, very controlled. Now as we walk down and we look up, we can see the reflection, right? So now when you're talking about uh, the plant starting to fill in, right, and starting to grow. And this is um, really being able to establish uh, a way of growing that we can have the right kind of density and the right, right, the right kind of yield that makes the economics work for all of us. Is there a difference, like the in what you grow, like higher in the stack or lower? So it kind of doesn't matter. So we control the entire environment, um, and so we're managing temperature, humidity, and so we can manage the environment for the, those factors. But sometimes we, we manage the type of crop. So if there's a, a warmer crop, that may uh, benefit from a, a hotter temperature. Yeah. Yeah. Closer. So heat rises. Heat rises. Heat rises even at Aero Farm. <laughs> at Aero Farm. So. What we're doing here, and all of a sudden you can see, whoa. whoa, right, the product. It's a beautiful product ready to be harvested. Aaron asked what jumped out. I have a small family farm yep. uh, in Parsippany, and she said what jumps out. My first thing was that it's so clean. Mm -hmm. um, and my second question, or I guess what jumps out at me, um, is what's the price point of a box of greens at the end of this, and what does it cost to produce in terms of your profit margins? And is it serving a market of people who can afford designer food that want everything controlled for because their macronutrient balance has to be just so for whatever their physical goals are? Or is it serving a market of people who are otherwise nutrient deficient, and this is providing, I mean, we're in the center of Newark, not known for its luxury high rises. So are we serving the market that is here uh, in terms of nutrient deficiency? So She's going to pack in 17 questions. Sorry. <laughs> go, go. <laughs> Aero Farms is a mission-driven organization. We're thinking about all of our key stakeholders, the environment, the community, uh, our key selling partners, and our shareholders. And the whole focus that we have here is how do we enable local production at scale to bring healthy, nutritious food to as many people as possible. And so we're not talking about a niche product. We're talking about how do we feed the masses? How do we really democratize good food and access to healthy food? What we're doing here, and we talk about scale and how we change the, the economics, this is a way how we lower our cost of goods when we have this much productivity in what we're doing here. And so here within the community, uh, we've partnered closely with for example, the ShopRite of Newark opened up here. First time a supermarket opened up in Newark in over 20 years. And we think about specifically areas of locating our farms where we can address issues. And so like issues around unemployment, this area that has historically unemployment. We're talking about job creation, all year round employment, fair wages, fair benefits. But on the food side, how do we increase healthy access to food? We actually have a farm stand here. Every Wednesday we open up our doors. People are able to enjoy access to incredibly freshly harvested produce like never before and have it all year round. How many people come? So this is one of the things within Newark, we are building that community. They know now today that if they don't get there at three, their favorites are gonna run out. And so this is something that's building them. We are changing behaviors and we're seeing it firsthand, the impact it has. 
part of why being in Newark and what we've had is a history here, we've actually been part of an inner city school here for over five years, Phillips Academy Charter School. So one of these, uh, we've had a working farm using this exact same technology in their dining hall. And so this is a K through eight school. Cool. It's run and operated by the sixth grade yeah. students. And so the idea is, again, how do you change you know, your connection with the food? How do you change behavior? We're seeing it firsthand. The students are in, you know, seeing how their food is grown. It gets harvested. goes right into the salad bar, right into the open kitchen. It's the shortest farm-to-table experience around. So these are things that we are very much passionate about in terms of how we impact the community. So it's about increasing that access to healthy food, how to make it cost-effective, how to increase jobs, and just really creating and celebrating this rich biodiversity here. Um, if we, how much does a box retail if we would you know, buy at the supermarket? So at the supermarket today, um, that uh, five ounce container is retailing for $3.99, which is exactly the same price that you have from the field. And again, it's actually grown locally. It's actually better product, better uh, nutrition, better flavor. And so we're talking about, again, better value for the consumer because they get a chance to enjoy it. One of the things that we think about businesses and where to disrupt, 50% of bag salads are thrown out today because of issues around spoilage. So we think about today, 50%? 50%. 50%. 50%. I, I, I think that I'm like a, a big reason behind that statistic. <laughs> like that rings very true so you for just me. just like bring the bag home and it rots in your fridge. Kind of. And huh. the challenge we have is that the type of greens that we're growing, 95% of them are grown in Salinas, California, or Yuma, Arizona, depending on the time of the year because of the environment. So by the time it gets to us here, it's five to seven days old. Yeah. Going through a very complex supply chain, a lot of miles, food miles. And they're gas, right? Or is in the There's packaging different ways that they gas. do to modify the atmosphere. Um, and that's kind of the dirty part of the equation, the processing side. People have this romantic notion about farming and being outdoors. All that's harvested and going into these facilities that are the size of two football fields, right? Uh, refrigeration, jet engine coolers, running 24-7 talk about when it says it's triple wash what are they washing away so we talked about issues around you know uh, the pests and pathogens we talked about issues around soil and then they have to wash it again because of the cross-contamination so really very uh, resource intensive part of the equation that's often now looked at and so this is about you know how we can do from seed to package all in a controlled environment right here I have a question um, about the energy required to yep. to make this so we're standing in this massive warehouse and just everything's buzzing you know there's a lot of there's a lot of activity happening and and I think one of the things that I've read about this system and also about hydroponics any kind of indoor growing is that it is incredibly resource intensive right you need not just from the water aspect for hydroponics but also like you have you use LED lights which mm -hmm. use a lot of energy so sure. How do you kind of, is it a net positive at the end of the day still, or how do you reconcile that um, challenge of just the, the inputs required? Yeah, first of all, this is a way of growing where we actually have full visibility of the entire growing spectrum. We actually understand the full cost. And electricity today is our biggest part of our cost of goods in terms of how we manage the environment. Mm -hmm. But we do things very strategically in terms of understanding and minimizing that. So we talk about growing with LED lights. We're actually able to eliminate part of the spectrum that are the energy hogs and be able to have a more efficient way of delivering the light. Uh, we're delivering the pumps and misting, but we're doing different things with that to do that more efficiently. Uh, we think about the environmental controls, you know, again, without having to wash the product right. very yeah. intensively. One of the key things that we think about, um, we think about alternative energy, renewable energy. Uh, our new facility, we're putting in uh, natural gas turbines, right? So that's something that has over 60% less carbon footprint than coal-generated electricity. 
takes out the inefficiency of the grid, which you can lose, lose 8% right there in and of itself. So we're very mindful. Uh, from the environmental standpoint, AeroFarms is part of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation Circular Economy 100. Uh, this is something that we take very seriously. Our CEO, David Rosenberg, is very involved with the World Economic Forum, and he co-chairs the Global Task Force on the Circular Economy. So we look at every aspect of the business. We think about the water, we think about the energy, we think about inputs, fertilizer, we think about those food miles, and how we can create a better approach. So that's so those are some of the ways we address this. I like the in the on the website you guys talk about like your light recipe. Yeah. So like it's on like it's not just like any old ball that you're sticking in there. So this idea, yeah, I mean, and you see in the big move from um, the lighting companies to move into the horticulture space because they see these opportunities, and so now they're retrofitting. Uh, so here we've been growing exclusively with LED lights since 2009, uh -huh. uh, and we have that expertise around understanding. Again, this is a marriage of the biology and the engineering how to bring the two together to optimize. Oh, wait, what is that noise? We heard that earlier. So, it's actually, like cleaning. it's just a, a power washer. Yeah. So the idea of just cleaning down. Yeah. And again, parts of the facility are being thoroughly cleaned. And so. This is a, you could eat off the floor of this facility. Well, it is what, very... When, when I moved up to the pig farm, the first thing I did, so I walk in the hoop barn, right? Yeah. And it's like, it's a hoop barn where all the, like, baby chicks were hatching out and all the sows were farrowing. And it was so dusty. I was like, "This is outrageous!" I come from working in a kitchen to working on a farm, yeah. and I like, I was like, "We have to clean this entire barn." And I spent the first three days there with a power washer and a giant hoop barn, like scrubbing all of the walls. That clean it was perfect. Like yeah. literally three days later, it was completely covered in dust and cobwebs again. <laughs> I was like, oh. so, yeah. yeah, this is, uh, you know, we talked about really bridging and, and setting a new paradigm here. This is. Uh, so it is a certified facility with the USDA for good, agri good agriculture practices. Uh, but really what we're trying to do here is set even a higher standard. You know, we have over 100 standard operating procedures on how and what needs to be done and where and how. And so uh, this is built on our history of growing, right? So we've been at this since 2004. What we're standing in is our, uh, our seventh farm. We're going to go visit our eighth farm. And so we've built them uh, throughout the U.S. We've built them internationally as well. And so, uh, we have that understanding about how to take different environments and turn it into green and productive. How do you manage staff training to make sure that everybody is followed? Because oh yeah, so I was gonna say a hundred standard up. I'm like thinking about us at radio. I'm like we have like you know we have Don't five full-time employees and then like 50 hosts and yep. getting everyone to do anything all the same is like so teach me like how do we make that happen for us? <laughs> so. We think about, we're talking about we have a working farm at a school, right? So we think about how we've made it a very accessible growing approach for the students to manage themselves. And then we take it to the next level here where we wrap in that food safety, the quality and control, the precision. Uh, and so what we do, and we're taking, uh, and what's been exciting for us is to be able to hire locally, people who never thought of themselves as farmers, but be able to transfer different skills. Uh, part of it is also partnering within the community. So we partner with Ironbound Community Corporation, one of the economic development groups here. So they're helping us identify some candidates. They're also helping us with the training. So someone may come in with forklift training. So again, that's a different skill set when we think about farming. But we're able to help, you know, sort of jumpstart that process. Uh, but that would be one of the operating procedures, you know, how to safely handle a forklift. But we're able to bring in people who've got that license. That expertise. How many employees do you have total? So we have over 75 people today, and so the idea, again, how do we create jobs, how do we create economic development, and uh, have an impact, you know, and over a third of that is uh, from the local area for, for Newark residents, 
and then we look at just within the that 10 mile radius you know it's 80 percent of our workforce oh, that's great yeah if you see a, like a gnat or a fly fly in is everybody like is there like red flashing light and they're like get the fly <laughs> <laughs> so anything from the insect pest management and one of the reasons why we have to and don't have to use any pesticides yeah we take it very seriously so uh, we think about all the controls. We make it very inhospitable for them as well. So one of the things around the lighting as well. So we eliminate parts of the green spectrum they use for navigation. We eliminate the infrared they use for mating. Uh, so we make it really not a fun place for them to hang out. And if they were to get in, our growing process, we're talking about 12, 16 days, is so much faster than their maturation process, which can be about 24 days. So we have a kill step in between and we start over again. And so we really minimize any kind of risk exposure. You mentioned that this facility is USDA GAP certified or Correct. yeah, good agricultural practices. practices. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what is entailed with that? Sure. But I think it's something that's not very well understood, kind of. Yeah. So, and what's interesting is that a lot of the practices are, are literally rooted from the outdoor farming, right? And so the idea of are the areas you know for animals you know penned off. So they're really worried about contamination to the water supply is one of the bigger challenges we have outdoors. Here we have our water tested, you know, at its input. We understand, you know, what's uh, the quality of the water. Uh, we make different adjustments based on the minerals. pulling from, like, the city supply. We pull from the city supply. Uh, one thing that's not known about Newark, it's actually uh, rich manufacturing history, but rich history as a brewery. Uh, and so there used to be tons of different breweries here. And why? Because of the water supply. And so that's one of the things that makes the quality. Newer, the quality of the water coming Would you just be from like um, a canary in the coal mine for lead levels. So we've heard issues. So again, we test uh, for lead, and there's no issues. And so where we've heard some issues uh, within Newark or within facilities that have old plumbing, old pipes, old yeah. pipes. And so the water itself is is, uh, is excellent source. And so we have everything tested, and that's what when we talk about having visibility. So we have everything tested, monitored. Uh, we're constantly looking at all of these uh, variables. Yeah. Where's um, the other farm? How far away? So, our other farm is just a half mile away, and we really think about it as one farming operation. You know, if you think about if you were outdoors, right, you, you would be uh, just around the corner. Yeah, go out to the back 40. <laughs> and, uh, exactly. And so, um, that's exciting for us because here we have 30,000 square feet, there we have 70,000 square feet, so 100,000 square feet. And we have more demand already for our, the product we're going to be having coming online that you know, we're trying to expand even more. So it really speaks to how we're uniquely meeting you know, some of the different uh, demands at the marketplace. Is this one person's brainchild? Or is this, because you said there you have engineers in water filtration and electric and all that, or is this one person who has hired those people to be the experts in the things to make this happen? Or was this a collaborative experience from the beginning? So this is a shared vision uh, for the three co-founders, which is uh, myself, Mark Oshima, I'm the Chief Marketing Officer, our CEO, David Rosenberg, as well as our Chief Science Officer, Dr. Ed Harwood. Say again, though, David's role is what? He's our Chief Executive Officer. Okay. Right, and so he's a clean tech champion. He's developed... Clean tech champion? Clean tech champion, yeah. Okay. His prior company was a company called Highcrete. Uh -huh. It was uh, one of the first ways of waterproofing concrete. It's also the first cradle-to-cradle -cradle certified product. So we talk about our lens on environmental. Uh, this is something that has been at the heart of every decision that we've made. Uh, he has sat on the, the board for Cradle to Cradle certification. Uh, Bill McDonough, who started that, has been one of the champions. What is Cradle to Cradle certification? It's about how you eliminate 
waste and minimize your impact on the environment. So the idea that all of a sudden concrete could be recyclable, right? Right. Okay, I'm going to jump in here um, so we can take a quick music and commercial break, and we're going to hear a word from our sponsors. When the special session picks back up, we're going to be joined on the tour by David Rosenberg, the CEO of Aero Farms, who dutifully answered all of our burning questions about his background and how and why he came to start the company. Stay tuned. Nettle Meadow Farm Cheese and Spirits Pairing is a celebration of good food and beverages in the newly restored Barn Loft event venue at Nettle Meadow Farm in Thurman, New York. On Saturday, June 18th, come sample and savor, then buy your favorite cheeses and beverages to take home. Nettle Meadow cheeses have been praised highly in national media and have won prestigious awards from the American Cheese Society. Taste samples of goat and sheep cheeses paired with an array of local regional wines, beers, and ciders. You'll never forget your first sample of rich, creamy Kunick, Nettle Meadows' trademark cheese. In Esquire, our very own Ann Saxelby said, Kunick, it may very well be the sexiest cheese in the USA. Nettle Meadow Farm is a goat and sheep dairy and cheese company in Thurman, New York, just below Crane Mountain in the Adirondacks between Gore Mountain, North Creek, and Warrensburg. It's owned and operated by Lorraine Limbiase and Sheila Flanagan. Both have a great love of animals, artisan cheese, and the unique challenges of farm life. Nettle Meadow Farm was originally founded in 1990, and it's the home of over 300 goats, dozens of sheep, and a variety of farm sanctuary animals. Again, the Cheese and Spirits pairing is Saturday, June 18th. For more information and tickets, visit NettleMeadowCheeseAndSpirits.com. That's N-E-T-T-L-E, MeadowCheeseAndSpirits.com. Uh, and David can share more. Absolutely. No, well, so he was just telling us a little bit about your background. So how does someone go from concrete to salad greens? It's intuitive, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, haven't, I can't remember the last time I intentionally put concrete in my mouth, but it's happened. <laughs> so a funny story, I was walking, I had to bring a sample of like our material, which was this like nanoparticle in concrete. And I had two samples of control in our facility. I was going through the airport and it looked like little pucks. So you can imagine TSA, or this might have been before TSA, but airport security nonetheless, he looks at it, and after giving it a good hard 20-second stare, which when you're waiting for like the verdict of whether you go to some yeah. like, god-awful line yeah. or stay in the current path, it's a long time. After, so after this 20-second awkward moment, he goes, looks like my wife's meatloaf. <laughs> okay, he gives it back to me, and he let me through. So that was the last time it was put in the context of something you'd put in your mouth. Put in your mouth. But um, so that aside, I was... Uh, Two things. One, the last company was, if you've heard of Cradle to Cradle, it's this uh, Cradle to Cradle was a philosophy that became a product certification. It's a very high standard of, of environmental stewardship that I'd be happy to go into. And uh, anyway, that was an inspiration for me. And, and the father of the Cradle to Cradle movement was two people. So the co-parents of that was this guy, um, uh, Bill McDonough and Michael Braumgart, an architect and a chemist. And Bill is a good friend, and he inspired this idea of, like, if you want to change the world after my last vision there, look to uh, agriculture. And then there's a lot of evils in agriculture in terms of water contamination, water uh, usage. 
and I was active in the World Economic Forum, and I joined something called the Global Agenda Council for Water Security, and that pressed harder of like how much water goes to agriculture. So if you want to solve water, look to solve agriculture is the net of that. And then if you look to where to be relevant, so let's say one is armed with just that, and you want to be relevant in the space of agriculture, one thing to do is look at trends. So local food production is a trend, it's not a fad. So that looked good. And then um, where to be relevant in local food production, started writing business plans of like, what are the possibilities? Leafy greens jumped out as a good place to start. So when you're starting a business, you always want to put yourself in a place where you could win or the, like where there's a lot of pain. So there's a lot of good attributes and a lot of pain points here. In Leafy Greens, you have a lot of production consolidation where most of the product is in the, grown in the San Joaquin, Salinas area. It's also known as the salad belt of the U.S. Uh, in, 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 it's also an area where there are a lot of droughts. So you, you, I'm sure you're aware of a lot of the droughts going on there. Plus, it's like a lot of electricity. So about 25% of California's electric bill is moving water from like the Colorado River to the Salinas Valley. And then you also look at food contamination. There's a lot of food contamination in the space. Think E. coli, salmonella, listeria, a lot of that in leafy greens. Try not to think about that, actually. <laughs> why, did it, why did it start like that? Like, box salad and bag salad greens are a fairly new... I mean, in my, I don't remember... I remember a time when that wasn't a thing. Who was like... It's not like... Desert. It's not like bad. all of a sudden there's more of it going around. I think there's more awareness. Recording so it's that. really hard. It's Exactly. It's recording, yeah. and it's... So people get sick, and then there might be a lag time. You don't. You imagine everything you eat in a day. It's hard. I mean, to, even before that, though, like who, what farmer was like, I know where there's no water and no electricity. That's where we should start our farm. Like it had to have been a financial decision to put the Salinas Valley, make that the salad I mean, belt. It, I think right? it oh, it's the environment. Them. Sorry. So the environment, when, like leafy greens, and this gets to another benefit of leafy greens. So if you look at Salinas San Joaquin, these products grow in 30-day increments. Yet there are only three crop turns a year. And it's grown there because the conditions, the temperature, humidity, pH, is uh, is perfect for growing leafy greens. And even though it's perfect, it's only perfect three crop turns a year. So really three, maybe four, five, if they're lucky, months a year, which talks to the seasonality. So leafy greens just are sensitive, and they need all the conditions going right, which speaks to the benefits of, local, of fully controlled agriculture to create that dynamic. So in the field, you're trying to match the genetics to whether it's GMO or best of breeding. You're trying to match that to the field, so to the, to the environment. Here at Aero Farms, we're able to match the environment to whatever the genetics are. So we don't use GMO, but whatever the genetics are, we try and give them what it wants. So we try and, the words we use, we joke around internally, are we listen to the plants very well. So what are they telling us? Do they want this amount of not spe a sunlight, but spectrum, do we want to alter it? So what spectrum do they want? What intensity? What frequency? And you take that and you peel it back and like, what's the same conversation that we have with the plants as it relates to like nutrients and micronutrients? And the same thing with temperature, humidity, pH, or all of what I just said and the lack thereof. So it's, there's a lot of complexity here and a lot of opportunities in the space. Getting back to the, the, the previous question, so leafy greens also some of the highest rates of spoilage in produce. So according to USDA, 62% of what comes off the farm spoils. Tremendous inefficiencies. Also some of the highest nutritional density. So part of it, Aero Farms, whatever we did, we decided we want to have three founding pillars in which to make decisions. Like what's good for the environment? What's good for society? 
what's good for shareholder profitability. On the profitability side, it's also some of the highest prices per pound items. So when you introduce a new technology to any industry, until there are economies of scale which bring down the cost structure, there's often a price, uh, like a cost premium that comes with that. So we want to be in a place that could absorb that cost premium. Right. Leafy Greens is a space that allows us to sell at the same price at which the market already buys, but still make money. I imagine that the startup costs for a facility like this are, are quite high. It's not something that you can just kind of go out and do immediately, so you need to be able to see that return on investment. They're, they are, and they're high because we produce a lot of product. And we produce a lot of product actually to lower the operating costs. Right. So within the, the cost of goods sold, yep. there are non-cash cost non -cash items like depreciation. All this equipment, how often it depreciates. The economies of scale are especially important with their areas that scale in a linear way. So these growing towers if I want, that you see before you. If we want to ha increase production, we increase growing towers. Mm -hmm. in, a, in a linear way, we get more production. Processing equipment, automation and seeding, harvesting, packaging, cleaning, that does not scale in a linear way. Meaning, often you want to build your production to utilize that processing equipment. So we can increase this facility, that facility by, uh, like, depends on the percentage, to, but you want to match it to utilize automation. And you want enough revenue, enough product to utilize and spread out the cost of those non-linear items. So economies of scale matter in this space. Uh, question, you mentioned a desire or one of the early impetus for starting this is the desire to kind of keep leafy greens local, to localize the food supply in some way. Do you have any restrictions on your distribution uh, in terms of how far out you go? Is it 250 miles? Do you really want to keep it on the eastern seaboard? We, we don't like using restrictions. So in the sense, I mean, or yes, guidelines. in some areas. So guidelines. love the word guidelines. <laughs> yeah. So the guidelines, so there's, Commitment. what is... Mark's what like, is, all right, guys, you're doing good yeah. so far. <laughs> what's the, so what are, like, what's local, what's hyper-local? These right. are kind of societies starting to define that. So, and then it's like, what debate do we want to be in? What debate don't we? So what's important to us is nutritional density. So nutritional value, spoilage or the lack thereof, freshness, right. Right. quality, safety. And we know the closer we are to the customer, typically the better we'll do in those. So we, we, we like to advertise or communicate, rather, where we grow right. so the customer can make an informed decision and what goes in it so the customer can make an informed decision and when it was harvested by so the customer can make an informed decision. And then the customer can see they, they want something that's fresh, which speaks to typically proximity. And then, I mean, here within the hyper-locals, like let's say we have a farm that's in a school. And I love that farm for all the right social reasons, so that's what we might call hyper-local. Right. And at the same time, the economies of scale aren't there. For us to add all these food safety elements that we might otherwise want to add in, so you need enough product to, every farm in our mind, should really have a food safety professional. Should really have someone who understands horticulture. And then there's just like operational management. And you need a big enough facility to bring those elements in to keep your cost structure down. So we look at, for example, this farm in Newark is gonna serve, or currently serves customers in New York City. So that's 15 miles away. Right. To us, that's, that's within local. local. That's hyper-local even. I mean, local, typically you're talking 250 miles or you can do within a state or even a region, right? It is, it's, it's, so I, don't, I don't think there's a definition. There's yeah. not one and, definition. And to hear right. what's important to us is let's, let's be transparent, let's communicate. So then the customer, let's say 
product ends up shipping to Connecticut or Washington, D.C. or Maine, as long as the customer can see where it's grown, when it's grown, they can make their own they decisions. Choice, yeah. our, well, our business model is to build farms in cities all over the world. So yes, we want to, there's a typical size farm that we think makes sense, yep. and we want that farm to be able to service a community. So what that, that demographic is, or that population size is, is important. But our average size farm is small enough that it could fit kind of the, if you call them like tier one, tier two, tier three cities, and you rank them based on population size, it could hit tier three cities across the country. So like Portland, Maine, or whatever, we could build a farm in Portland, Maine, or- To service to, to the service like northwestern area. area. So the idea is you're trying not to get these greens grown here to be shipped to California, you'd rather build a farm in California. Right, but for example, we're, we're we have a pipeline project right outside of Philadelphia mm -hmm. to service Philadelphia. Right. Instead of farming here in Newark to service Philadelphia, which is on one hand, it's whatever, an hour and a half drive, but on the other hand, it's built something there. I yeah. can just, I like imagine like the listeners of my show who are used to hearing from like more traditional farmers, um, having a little bit of the like, oh, this guy sounds like a real businessman, like we're gonna take over the world. It's like a, not a, a environmental soft, well, right. no, I mean, because it sounds like in an interesting way that like you're using agriculture as like a, because you're a, an environmentalist, like as like a, a like a, like a tool to like maintain these other ends. But like one of, the, uh, go ahead. Anytime you want to change the world, it takes yeah. an intensity. Yeah. So we have a lot of passionate, intense people here at Aero Farms. And if you want to change the world of agriculture or feed the world, you, you need to bring it. We absolutely have these pillars of environmental stewardship, societal stewardship. We are alleviating a food desert here in Newark. We're hiring people locally. We are hiring past offenders, trying to make that work yeah, and often no. making that work. On the environmental side, we, we, it's important to us that we are, are, in absence of soil, we're using a material that's not only 100% recycled, but 100% reusable. We, to find a way or, or set the goals of a way and achieve 95% less water, zero pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, using about 50% less fertilizers. And in our design meetings, we constantly talk about how do these materials go? How do we grow using grow more using less? Yeah. How do we use the right materials in the right application? It still feels different to be inside a factory in the middle of Newark than out in the middle of like a field in the rolling hills. Of and often, so a couple points. One is I co-chair, co-founded and co-chair the Circular Economy Task Force for the World Economic Forum. Uh -huh. Where a lot of what we try and do at the Davos community is inspire both other members of the Davos community as well as people all over the world. And, and one of the ways in doing so is show people what technological innovation can do. Often, from an environmental standpoint, the best thing you could do for Mother Nature is leave it alone. The world has lost a third of its arable land in the last 40 years, both from depleting nutrients from the soil over farming and by putting in pesticides, herbicides, fungicides over fertilizing that leads to river runoff. I mean, all these algae blooms are from these runoffs that lead to algae blooms. Well, like our idea of farming is already a little romantic and misguided. Essentially. Very misguided. <laughs> like, um, I mean, and I think that's the thing. Like, people are like, oh, I, I show up at the farmer's market. Like, this is how the world works. This is the farm that's feeding, quote unquote, I, I don't love the phrase feeding the world, but like, 
So I, I think too, there's like something about like finding a way to have the conversation in between those two points of like yeah. that. So, so, so it's just like interesting. I think it'll be interesting for like our listeners to hear because like it's a very different like you're coming at it from a very different space, but it's also one that's like again you're thinking about like the scales of operation and like what you're trying to do and how it compares to not not like my local kind of berry farmer that I go get asparagus from in the spring. And that's just good business, right? It's good business, and what's cool for like the naturalist, if you will, yeah. when you break down what the seed wants. It has wants in water, in oxygen, in carbon dioxide. They're carbon-based plants. They're in not sunlight, but spectral requirements, spectrum of light, in nutrients, micronutrients. So we get really smart of listening to the leaves again, or just being all over the leaves to understand what they want and give them those same ingredients they otherwise get out in the field but we give them this white glove experience. We give them what they want, when they want it, how they want it, and constantly optimize. So it's much more efficient way of growing, much efficient from a resource standpoint, and efficient from even after the product's made, getting it to the, to the plants. And what's great is, from a naturalist standpoint, so most people can't name more than five different varieties of leafy greens. At Aero Farms, we've grown 250 different varieties. I know, I saw that. <laughs> so these same naturalists want to bring back heirloom varieties. Yeah. Aero Farms is much more likely to figure that out and bring that to the customer so they have like readily available access to these products and also like enjoy the flavors. Yeah. So time and time again, one of, the, one of my surprises, I used to look at Aero Farms as a distribution play. We're disintermediating the supply chain, enabling local food production. But we're able to compete on taste, texture, nutrition, as well as yield because of our ability to understand the plants and give it what it wants. And this is all using non-GMO seed. We could take the same organic seed and grow it here and just grow it in a better way than the field farmer. Are, uh, are any of your products certified organic? Have you gone after that certification? So, or, so we are not. And it, in here it depends how organic is defined differently in different parts of the world. So we grew, don't grow without soil. Okay. We also don't grow, we don't put in organic fertilizers. And here, we made a conscious decision from a food safety standpoint. A lot of those organic fertilizers are basically fish food. Right, so I, fish, mean, I mean by the USDA designation in the United States. No, yeah. no. Okay. So, so here, but at the same time, if you poll the customer, like I think it's nine, over 92% of the people that buy organics, if you ask them what their motivations are, it is they don't want the chemical compromised material. So they don't want the pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, and they don't want all the fertilizers. Two things to point out. One is there are organically certified pesticides, there herbicides, are. fungicides. Yep. Like snake poison is organic. Yeah. Doesn't mean I want to eat it. So <laughs> we don't we grow without pesticides, herbicides, fungicides. And our fertilizers oh, so are herbicides buried. and fungicides. Correct. Why do you only say pesticide? No, no or, pesticides, herbicides. No, so but some on the website say, and stuff, it just says pesticides. Technically, pesticides are herbicides and fungicides are pesticides. Are, oh, okay, cool. I didn't know that. I was wondering about that. So they all fall under the same thing. We've had this internal debate. Yeah. So most people think of like. Them is different. Like, like the, in my head, I'm like, one's for pests and one's for other kind of like. Like, or what it sounds like, basically. So then you have some horticulturists who are like, they're all pesticides. Right. You're being redundant. Yeah. Say it all. 
Okay, cool. So that wasn't me. Like, look, it's like putting non-GMO certification on an organic label, <laughs> or you know, like the or the gluten-free popcorn. Yeah. <laughs> That's the best. Anyway, sorry. Okay, so you're, you're what you're saying is like your practices exceed what is commonly accepted and designated the federal designation of organic. You just don't have that specific USDA organic certification because it's a different growing process. Yes, I would change, interchange the word exceed for like what the customer wants, we exceed. So what the customer wants isn't organic pesticides, herbicides, fungicides. They want clean food. Right. They want residue-free food. In that sense, yes, we exceed it. Right. We deliver residue-free food. So when you look on the label and it says triple wash, most people don't think, what does triple wash I mean? That, yeah. But you look at, like, if you look at Salinas and you see one pool of triple wash and another pool of triple wash and another pool, you see milky white water, then less milky white water, then less milky white water, you realize, oh, it's washing something off. Right. So you look at our product and the way we grow. So we have none of those chemicals going on it. And then the cloth is our dirt, if you yeah. will, but it also barriers the nutrients, the delivery of nutrients and micronutrients. So there's there's nothing to wash off. The, that stays at the roots. The leaves stay pristine. The leaves stay clean. My kids eat the product every day. We don't wash it. At the Rosenberg household, it's eaten as a finger food. Literally, I brought home some kale yesterday, picked up my son from school. By the time we got home, he ate through a whole five-ounce container of kale. I like that. Yeah. That was my nine-year-old, by the way. So that, and that's where like a lot of people don't like kale because it's too bitter or it's too rough. So we understand the levers and how do you make a kale more tender? How do you make it sweeter? Was so I not true. saying that looked like the softest, tenderest kale ever? Jenna just know. wants to like lay on the bed yeah. and wrap up with the blankets. Just, yeah, just like <laughs> nosh, you know. What about uh, like Maybe you guys should do a calendar? <laughs> you guys are awesome. You do have so to that point. Like you've heard of, you've been nice. to like I was at a party. There was a wine tasting. And we needed to do a pairing, but we also did a leafy green tasting. So we had all these different greens. So people tried Asian greens, mustard greens, all these different spices where like, you don't need salad dressing if you get this, like the right mixes and blends and bring back the right flavors. It's beautiful. And now we need to pair it with the right wines and then we're still there. Yeah, that's all you need. And we're going to have to leave it there for today. Thank you so much to Mark Oshima and David Rosenberg for a fabulous tour of Aero Farms. I also want to thank our sponsors, as always, for their generous support. This segment was co-hosted by Aaron Fairbanks and Emily Peterson, and it was produced by Joshua Torres and Hunter Liu. Show music is by Tim Archer, and our show engineer is David Tedashore. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook and find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.